Psalm 46 is what I would like to read today, <clears throat> and it's not a long psalm, so we'll read it all, beginning in verse 1, reading from the New King James Version this morning. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. <clears throat> now all of those words, each of these verses, if we <clears throat> were to select some themes here, I think that at least three are clearly here. They had to do with God and his relation to us, his care for us, his continual presence and acts on our behalf. So let's look at three things I think are revealed in this psalm about God in his relation to us. First, God is aware. God's aware. He knows. This psalm makes it clear that he is totally knowledgeable about everything that's going on in the entire world, which is a thought I don't think we can grasp. There's nothing he doesn't know. You look just at, at us this morning. All that's going on in our lives, the hopes, fears, worries, and that's the stuff we know about. I don't have any idea what, what's going to happen tomorrow that will maybe add to that. I don't know. He knows. He is totally aware. 
Now, one of the devil's lies was thinking yesterday, really, what's the devil's job description? If he has one, it's nothing but slandering God to us and getting us to believe it. That's really, that's his job description. It's lying to us about God and his relation to us, his care for us, his awareness with us, and then doing his best to get us to believe the slander. It's a pretty simple program. But if you're the devil, it's actually worked pretty well. There's no real reason to rearrange the strategy. If if it's not broke, don't fix it. This psalm deals clearly with trouble, difficulty, heart heaviness, all kinds of things that we have to deal with. The promise here is God is aware. He knows. The enemy will lie to us and tell us that he either doesn't know, forgot, doesn't care, None of that's true. Now, this is not a deep theological point I want to make here. Something that's really profound and lofty intellect. I was visiting with one of you yesterday on the phone. And a little bit of the conversation I've been thinking about... um, all through yesterday and again this morning. We were talking about horses. Now, I am a city slicker, you know, cowboy. I owned a pair of boots once. Um, I probably have a romantic idea about um, horses and ranching and all that. Um, There's something about horses, though, I think they're one of God's most magnificent creatures. The way he's made them, just everything. Now I know those of you who, who have many of them sometimes disagree. Um, but let me keep my romantic idea um, about horses. But we were talking about how the weather changes in the winter coming and how early or late in the fall, they get their winter coat. And I've been thinking about that ever since. How, how do they know, man, I better get going here with a winter coat. It's a little bit of a chill here in September. Or... How do they know, I don't have to worry about it until the 1st of November because we're going to have a mild. How do they know? They don't. God does. And he's built into them a system that anticipates the same thing. was going through the channels looking the other day at some stuff in the Arctic and how foxes 
rabbits, which are just nothing but little rodents. I mean, they're rodents. We run over them, you know, we don't worry about it. But God built into them that when it, began to, when it begins to get cold and freeze and snow, their fur changes to white so that they are safer. They're protected from predators. See how little of the whole world God's in charge of rodents. <laughs> How much more, like Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet he said, not one of them is lost to your father. And then he said, in, the, in a simple, touching statement, don't be afraid. Fear not. Worry not. He said, you are worth more than a lot of sparrows. Again, he takes care of buck-toothed rodents. He'll take care of us. He knows. He knows. I remember a preacher talking about a church he went to one time. It wasn't his. He went to speak. And some of the leaders of the church, they were kind of down. They weren't doing very well. And this guy made the statement to this preacher, and then he related it. But with a straight face, he said, God doesn't even know how bad off we are. <laughs> well... Yeah, he probably does. And he might have a different opinion of how bad off we are. We don't know. But if God takes care to see that an animal gets a heavy enough coat for the winter because they don't go out and buy coats, doesn't he know about us who are made in his image and likeness, and unlike any other creature, we have, as he said in Genesis 1, he breathed into our nostrils the breath of lives. It's divine breath that we have. It's the same word for the Spirit, Spirit of God. He breathed the Spirit into us. He made us as our dwelling place. He's aware. It's almost impossible to grasp. We matter to God. We matter to God. Who's got the worlds, the stars, the galaxies to worry about? the earth to worry about. And we read here, there are wars, the heathen rage, all the things that are going on. And I think all, all of us know, we recognize the tumult um, that we're in today. But God is seated on His throne and He rules 
in tranquility, God never chews his fingernails. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows the hairs of our head. He knows. That thing that you wonder, does God, does he, does he realize? Yeah, he does. He knows. Nothing either. I believe in the sovereignty of God. It's in the scripture. Now, that doesn't mean I'm a predestinarian. I don't believe in that. When it comes to choosing God or not. But everything else, he's sovereign. Nothing can get to me unless it first passes under his review. He knows before he, in his infinite wisdom, chooses. This isn't going to happen. This I'm not going to allow. He's fending off all the time in this world, which is a fallen, wicked hellscape, frankly. And he knows the enemy's strategies. The stupid thing about the devil is somehow he's forgotten that God's omniscient, which includes foreknowledge. The most catastrophic defeat of the enemy came about because the devil thought a move on his part would give him victory when in fact it laid the groundwork for his defeat. If he had not insisted, God obviously knew all this, but if the devil in his blind rage hadn't thought it would be victorious if he could get the Son of God either in his temptation time to fall or to put him to death on a cross. A win! All it did was open up the gates of death and Jesus came in. And when he left three days later, he had the keys of the whole place. He had the keys. He says, I hold them in my hand of death and of hell. You can't outsmart God because he is aware. He knows. He's been around a while. Second, God is not only aware, but he's active. Now in this psalm, we see he's never idle. God's been forever. From everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. He's never had an idle moment. Now he rested on the Sabbath after he created the earth. But even then, he obviously wasn't idle. God is always working. There is a little verse, I believe it's in the Gospel of John, where Jesus encourages us. He says, My Father has been working up until now. And he said, I am working. It is a lie that God isn't doing anything. Frequently, we're tempted right there. He isn't doing anything. It's like the disciples. Jesus is asleep in the boat. 
and a terrible storm comes upon them. And he's apparently still out cold. They're rowing like mad. They're bailing. I don't know what all they were doing, but finally they woke him up. And their statement reveals, they said, really what they were thinking. They said, don't you care that we're perishing? Well, they were still breathing air, not water. But in their minds, it was over. Because God wasn't doing anything. He didn't care. And so they had to wake him up, get him, stir him up. I think all of us are tempted, I know I am, to advise God. We know. We know what he needs to do. We know when he needs to do it. We know how rapidly he needs to do it. Because we know. No, we don't. We don't. I made, I recorded, I think it was this past week, recorded, you know, the devotionals that um, we put out that go all around the globe. Um, tens of thousands of people. Not quite. But I did a little devotional on a thought I've been having about Joseph. Joseph had nothing, as we look at it, if you read the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, it was one reversal, one setback, one unthinkable tragedy after another. He gets thrown in a pit by his jealous brothers. He thinks he's going to die there. They were initially just going to kill him and get it over with. Then, in a surge of mercy, they decided, well, let's don't kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. Then we can sort of have hands off. Well, then, Judah gets the idea, let's don't kill him. He's, you know, we can make some money out of this. Here come some Ishmaelites, their distant relatives. They're heading to Egypt. They're merchants. They're traders. They're in a camel um, caravan. Let's sell him to them, and they'll sell him into slavery or whatever in Egypt. But we not only won't have his blood on our hands in the sense that we killed him, but we'll, you know, we'll make some money here. And so Joseph probably gets his hopes up. They pull him up out of the pit, and he probably thinks, man, I dodged a bullet here, only to find out he's sold by the Ishmaelites. They take him to Egypt. He gets sold to Potiphar, who was, it, it, the language there is, he was chief of the butchers. That's the word. It's the private guard for Pharaoh. You got within any kind of distance, and they took her head off. So this guy was not a really nice guy to start with. And so he brings Joseph into his household, and it says, the Lord prospered Joseph. Everything he did prospered. What? I wouldn't see that as, boy, God's profiting me. 
thought I was going to get killed. At least I dodged that. And then they threw me in a pit. Then they sold me. And now here I'm a slave. Man, God's prospering me. I'll tell you what things are going. I'm writing a book that will go into the Christian bookstores. Then he gets framed, completely framed, by Potiphar's crummy wife. And the truth of the matter is, I can't go into all the details here, but there's, there's strong evidence that Potiphar didn't trust her. He had to make a show that he believed her story, but she probably had a reputation. Because he would, if, it had, if he'd have believed it with all of his heart, he'd have offed Joseph's head right in the kitchen. But it says he threw him into the prison. Not necessarily, it wasn't the bad prison. It was not good, but it was the king's prison. It was where the high people who were being investigated or whatever were incarcerated. It's a hint that Potiphar didn't completely trust her, but he had to act as he did. Nevertheless, who got hurt in it? Joseph, now he's in jail. He's in prison. You know what the scripture says? God prospered him. What? <clears throat> Here's another book he could write. Uh, I got a prison ministry out of it. What in the world? God prospered him. Now we know that Joseph didn't get that to start with. Reuben the oldest of the 12 brothers who initially threw him in the pit and got rid of him. Later on, Reuben said, we saw the agony on his face as he pled with us not to do this. So Joseph didn't think it was a good thing. God's hand is in it. This is fine. I'm rejoicing. He didn't say that. He pleaded and begged for his life. It didn't happen. Then he gets down to Egypt. Then he gets thrown into jail. And he meets the baker and the cupbearer of Pharaoh because apparently there was a poison attempt or a belief that there was a poison attempt. And the two guys that were thrown in prison were Pharaoh's wine server and the other guy who was the baker. So they figured they got it down to where maybe it wasn't the guy that did the vegetables. It was the guy that baked the bread or the guy that brought the wine. But we're going to get to the bottom of this. Well, the baker, the baker apparently fell under suspicion. And so he gets released from prison only to get his head cut off. And the butler, the wine server, he gets pardoned. And he goes back. And so Joseph, remember what Joseph did there. He pleaded with the butler. Please get me out of this. Go tell Pharaoh now that you've been exonerated. Please make my case to Pharaoh that I was kidnapped. I don't belong here. I was falsely accused. Please get me out of here. He wasn't uh, yet to the place where he could say, this is God's hand. I'll stay here as long. I'm fine. I'm being prospered. 
And it says, the butler forgot him. That plea that Joseph made, please get me out of here. The butler forgot all about it. And he was there in the prison two more full years. Then we know Pharaoh had the dreams and Joseph had been become known in prison to the baker and the butler that he could interpret dreams. And so quickly they call for him. He interprets the dreams of the famine to come and what to do to prepare for it. And in that, in one day, he's elevated to second in the land, just under Pharaoh. He still grieved because the names that he gave to his sons were names about my land that I've not been from and I haven't seen my family. And so he still wondered. Finally, when the famine hit that he had predicted and his brothers come from Palestine to buy grain and he recognizes them, and when they go through the rigmarole, that took a year at least, maybe two of the seven years of famine, And finally, when God and Joseph together trapped those 11 brothers and outed them, and they realized we're in trouble because Joseph recognized them, they didn't recognize him, and he accused them of being spies, and they were scared to death. And they, not still knowing who he was, came to him, bowed down to him, groveled on the ground, and said, you're like a lord to us. You have the power of life and death. We don't know what to say. Judah made a statement. He says, God has found out our iniquity. It was 20 years now since they pulled that stunt. Joseph was in the furnace of this for 20 years. And Judah didn't know who he was, but he says, God's found out our iniquity. He didn't go into all the details. But finally, Joseph makes himself known to them. And still, he may not have completely understood He sends home to Palestine. He brings Jacob and the whole family, the whole household of Jacob, down into Egypt. Jacob lives 17 more years, and then he dies. Dies at 147 years of age. They bury him. Then the brothers. Now this is nearly 40 years since they treated Jacob, or Joseph, like they did. They come to him, and once again they bow and they grovel, and they say to him, now our dad's off the scene. They figured that Jacob would protect them from Joseph's vengeance. And they said to Joseph, now that our father's dead, please don't take vengeance on us for what we did to you. By then, all those years, Jacob, who'd gone through that fire, was able to look at them. He said he wept 
he said, I forgave you. And then he said this, you, this is amazing. He said, you didn't send me down to Egypt. You didn't do that. God did. He, got, he said, God sent me ahead of you to spare your lives during this famine that was to come. So he said, God did it. Now, he still didn't sugarcoat it. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people alive. What, what a strategy. What moving parts. And God was over it all. And it took Joseph, and it often takes us, to realize God's allowed this. He had a higher purpose I couldn't see. I only saw the circumstances right in front of me, nearly fainted over it, perished. But God, He's working all the time. Always. Finally, God's available. He's not only perfectly aware, He's not only active, He's available. A very present help in time of trouble. Now, what's that all about? The fact that God is very near, He said, I'm closer than your hands or your feet. I know what's going on. The God of Jacob, two or three times here, is with us. What does God being available mean? It puts some responsibility on us. Yes, God's available. He's right here. He's very present. Always. But I have to avail myself of His availability. I have to do something. There's some action words here that are given to us. Early on when he says the heathen rage and the earth. He said, if the earth be removed. I just looked at those words and I just kept reading them. Though the earth be removed, though the mountains be cast into the sea. What? <laughs> That's pretty severe. We will not fear. So the first thing is, keep my courage, keep my faith, trust God. I won't even be afraid. Outwardly, humanly, initially, yes. But we talk to ourselves. David encouraged himself in the Lord before a great battle that was a life or death one. We avail ourselves by not succumbing to the circumstances. And then, later on in this psalm, he said, come, let's go look. Come, behold the works of the Lord. That's the business of reminding ourselves God's never failed us. He's never failed us. He's never failed us. We all have our areas, our issues that are hard for us. Um, with the ministries different than other things, you, you go through things I don't. 
But I can look back and I can say all those times when it is either late Saturday night or Sunday morning and I'm thinking, well, flip a coin for what I'm going to say tomorrow. Um, my head's as blank as can be, feelings dead as can be, and you think, what in the world? Then I can look back and I can say, in the decades of preaching virtually every Sunday, funerals, whatever it is, has God ever failed me? He never has. I have a title of a book. It's literally, the title is, God Has Never Failed Me. The subtitle is, But He Has Scared Me to Death Three or Four Times. <laughs> yeah, but He's never failed. He never fails. He always shows up. And notice here, it says, He will come to us right at the break of dawn. Other versions say, right early. And sometimes, remember the old phrase, it's darkest just before the dawn. Yeah, and we find ourselves in the dark. And we think, Lord, where under the sun are you? Do you know? Yeah, he does. And he's there right at the break of dawn. In fact, he's the one that brings the dawn. He's the one that the light comes over the mountainside. I have to avail myself. I have to call upon him. I have to, knowing that God is near, I don't care what the issue is. If I know there's a shadow over my soul, the devil's beating on me, and my feelings are, I, I'm sore tempted to think God's abandoned me. I have to fight the good fight of faith. I have to avail myself and say, no, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to trust. I've mentioned this before. We have three basic attributes of God's that he gave to us. Will, reason, emotions. The devil has wonderful, easy access to emotions and to reason. Those are his primary ways, but though the only reason he uses emotions and will or uh, reason is to get at will. That's what he's after. Because I can be emotionally a mess. My feelings can be a jumbled mess. My mind, I can't even think straight. I don't know which ends up. That's not sin. That ultimate, I can survive that. The one thing that my soul cannot survive is a choice of the will to disobey, to disbelieve, to believe the devil's slander of God, to rebel against God, to become angry with God. Just as a side note, I hear a lot, there are whole books about Christian authors about, you know, ang being angry with God. I've even read some, and I'm not making this up, who say there's, there's prayers and attitudes in which you forgive God. Don't try that. 
And any temptation to become angry with God squelched that immediately. That'll ruin your soul. We don't get mad with God. Can we be tempted? Of course. But we, you just don't. Because He's God. He's perfect. He's never made a mistake. He knows what He's doing. So, we avail ourselves by sheer choice. We will not fear, this psalm says. That's a choice. That's really not feelings. It's a decision. Okay, we're not going to fall apart. We're going to trust God. We will not fear. And we will go look at the works of God. Remind ourselves all the way God's helped. He's never failed us yet. How many times have we thought we're done? Now, being a pessimist, you know, I need one of those little clicker things to counter, you know, to know how many thousand times I thought, well, it's over. No hope. Church will probably close. It's never happened. God has never, ever failed. He's not going to start now. And finally, the other action then, which is really not action. The other, it's a verb. Be still. Footnotes in some Bibles that have footnotes say, let go or relax. Be still. And what? And know, and that word know is also an, act, an, an action word. Know, I'm God. God rules in tranquility, serenity. He's not worried. You can't worry God. <laughs> and he, ah, oh, there's an ancient, ancient hymn, immortal invisible, God-only, wise, in light that we can't even behold. He's not worried, and he's got our case. Seek him. I don't care what it is we need. All the way from forgiveness for sins, cleansing of a double-minded heart, help in time of trouble the word that word he's a very present help in time of trouble in this psalm the word for trouble is tight places any of us ever been in a tight place we're hemmed in man alive lord what in the world and we can't do anything the best place for us to be is when we can't do a thing then we know who did do something when it happens Let's bow our heads. I don't know, but I am positive that every one of us have issues that are burdens too heavy for us to carry. Conundrums too tangled up for us to think our way through. I don't know what they are, but God does and you do. We'll take just a moment before the benediction once again, even if you prayed earlier, commit it to God. Let go. Relax.
I'm God. Before I pray, if you would look at me, I have a request that God laid on my heart that I want to share with you this morning. Sunday mornings we come in here and we have messages like this that strike our heart. They encourage us, they inspire us, and we get up and go home. And then tonight when the lights go out, we forget. So this morning, if we're willing to remember today and believe that he does know, he does care, and he is in the midst of what you're going through, please stand. If you believe that that's true, you don't have to stand, but if you believe that's true this morning, I want you to stand real quick, please. Because I want us to recognize this morning that we didn't just hear these words. Our response is, Lord, we stand in honor of you this morning, believing with all of our hearts that he cares. That when we feel like we're drowning, he's there. And that is going to be a choice that we are going to have to consciously make with that will that our pastor taught us this morning. So may we be a church that gives our will over to the belief that he is there and he does care. And we remember that and we're willing to make that choice in the midst of the hardest seasons of our life, knowing that one day we will stand before the one with the shining face of the Lord and say, thank you, Lord, for just being there for me no matter what the situation was. Let's pray. Father in heaven, to say that we love you is just sometimes so void because we can't describe what you've done for us when we look over our shoulders. What you've done for us and the things that you've walked through us, through, a, through with us. But Lord, we do love you. May we be a church that takes that free will that you've given us and crawl up upon that altar that Paul encouraged us to do and as we stand this morning, Lord, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. Help us not to conform to what goes on outside this church in that world, but help us to be renewed by the, be, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And when we read the scripture and we underline things and things strike us, may we just remember and choose to trust the one who knows everything and the one who cares more than we'll ever understand. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.